0: Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church, frozen Baptist Church, if you will. We are so glad that you have opted to brave the elements and make your way out this morning to worship with us. I was watching last night, Robin and I, we're able to go down to Atlanta, Georgia uh, for the last couple of days to join with Mission Serve, the organization that we serve with with our youth group every summer to celebrate uh, our 20th anniversary. And we got to Atlanta and it was 61 degrees when we landed. By the time we ended our trip on the Marta, the the train, and got off, it was much colder, and then by the time we came home, it was frigid. But then we landed and we realized what, remembered what real cold was. And I watched as all of my friends up north were canceling and postponing and, and pushing back services, and I was like, not us! We're gonna have service on Sunday morning, we'll push through that cold. And So those of you that stayed home warm, good for you, we're glad you're there. But for those of you that are here, kudos, right? You, you get your little pat on the back, your badge of honor today for braving the elements. It is a good day to be with you together in the house of the Lord today, and I am excited about uh, this morning's sermon. I'm preaching a book that I've not heard preached before and that I myself have not preached on, and that is the book of Philemon, the book of Philemon. So as we turn our attention to the word of God this morning, let us go to the Lord in prayer, asking him to open our hearts and minds. Father God, I thank you for this day of life that you have given us. I thank you for the truth of your word, Lord, that all of it is there for a purpose, it's there for a reason, it is there for uh, the edification, encouragement, and to challenge your people, your church, Lord, to correct our actions. So Lord, I pray that as we look at this letter from Paul to Philemon, Lord, that you would inspire our hearts, Lord, that you would help us to see ourselves in this text, not just as the one needing to receive grace, Lord, but as the one needing to extend it, as we live out the new life that we have in Christ. God, speak to us this morning by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, for those of you that weren't able to join us, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It's one of those verses that back in the day when they were doing Bible memory, it was one of those that was, you had to memorize it. Right? That if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and all things have become new. And it's a great verse within the context of a great passage. It reminds us that what we were in Christ, we no longer are. And what we are is not what we need to become. That all of us, as we talked up about last week, are in fact works in progress. We're, we're like, we're like a, a car, an old car that is, is being renovated and remodeled. There's always another part to put on it. There's always something else you need to go to Napa and get so that you can improve that car. Isn't that right, Greg? You always got something else you need to add to take it that next step. And we're like that, that God has plans for us and and there's improvements that he wants to make so that our our performance, the way that we function is more in line with the way that Jesus himself functions. Paul, at the end of that 2 Corinthians 5, he, he reminds us, invites us to join us in the ministry of reconciliation, reminding us that at its core, the gospel and the new life that we are called to live in Christ is relational, Right? We're going to talk about this several times, I'm going to come back to it several times throughout our message this morning, that, that our, our ministry of reconciliation is both vertical and horizontal. Right? God reconciles us to himself through the work of Jesus Christ and then invites us to be reconciled to those around us that we might help them be reconciled to Jesus. The work and truth of the gospel is at its core a relational work. And God has gone to incredible lengths to bring us into right relationship with himself and to empower us and enable us to extend that grace to others. In order for us to call others into right relationship with God, we must also make the effort to restore and maintain right relationships with one another. This is a key component to living the new life that we are given in Christ. It moves us beyond simply accepting the gift that God offers to actually understanding it and implementing and implying it in how we live our daily lives. And it calls us to go beyond just loving those that loved us but also loving, forgiving And living in relationship with those who have actually wronged us. Those that we might be tempted to consider our enemies. When someone wrongs or hurts us, it's not natural, is it? It's not natural for us to just let it go and let God. That's what we like to say, isn't it? Someone hurts us, someone wrongs us, something bad happens in life and we offer that trite truism. You need to just let it go and let God. That's great when you're the person that gets to tell someone else that truth, right? It's a lot harder when you're the one that has to accept that truth and live it out in your own life. I've gone back and forth on how I wanted to start this sermon this morning. But I confess In my own life, at this very moment, I am actively struggling to apply what I'm about to preach. I have been insulted, I have been undermined, and I have been injured by people who are sisters and brothers in Christ, by family and friends, And I confess that my hurt often colors my perception of those people. My hurt poisons my heart towards them. My hurt influences my interactions with them. And I'll be honest, I don't try to hurt them back, but at this point, I just disregard them and avoid them altogether. But as a new creation, I, we cannot allow the world standards of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That if someone wrongs me, I'm going to wrong them. I actually saw this on, on a, a, a video yesterday where, where a, a prominent athlete said, well, you know, so-and-so went as far as they could and turned in the other cheek. But I'm going to tell you what, Jesus wrote that, said that to them back there. I'm not there. I'm not them. That doesn't apply to me. Someone hurts me, I'm going to put hands on them. Brothers and sisters, that is not the way that we should act. Yes, Jesus said these things and Paul wrote these things to someone very specific back then, but there are applicable principles for us in the here and now. We do not have an option. I read a quote the other day that said, loving neighbor is not a geographical concept, it is a moral imperative. I just thought to myself, well, if I could only find an example in the Bible of how a person should live out this reconciliatory ministry and this life that God has given us, that would be really helpful. Enter Philemon. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open that with me, open that with me this morning to Philemon. It's one chapter, just a small book, just 25 verses. We're going to start in verse 1 and read it through the end. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all of his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful, both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. So we have this letter here from the Apostle Paul, right? And Paul is writing, this is the one letter in all of the epistles that scholars actually consider a personal letter. Now you could say to me, Well, what about what about first and second Timothy? What about Titus? What about Jude? Well, all of those letters have instructions for the church. Right? Those are, are letters that are written to various pastors with the intent that they would take these letters, they would apply the principles therein, and then they would pass them on to others. Timothy was just the first amongst many that was supposed to read it, as was Titus. This letter, however, is a personal letter about a personal issue. It's Paul writing to his good friend and church leader Philemon concerning the treatment of one Onesimus. Philemon, Philemon's slave, Onesimus, had run away, and Paul is sending him back with some good news and recommendations about how Philemon should deal with Onesimus. I want to deal with some things that, that right off the start, that, that are uncomfortable about this text in our modern social justice era. Paul never explicitly denounces slavery. Paul doesn't say, hey, this is immoral what you are doing to Onesimus. You need, you need to let him go. As a matter of fact, Paul, Paul does exactly the opposite. He says, hey, Onesimus, you need to go back. You need to go back to your slavery and, and, and you need to accept whatever comes from Philemon's hand. So this morning, we're not going to address the, the morality or immorality. I have my own opinions, and, and we can have that discussion in private, so please don't cancel me for preaching out of Philemon, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to recognize the book for what it was in its historical context, and we're not going to overlay our context and our impressions of how things should be today onto the text. Can we agree to that this morning? We're going to let the text say what the text say, regardless of whether we agree or understand with all of what it's saying. But we've got to ask the question, because this book is in the Bible, so the questions have to be asked. Why is this letter included in the text of Scripture? What is it meant to teach us about living the Christian life? And how does it connect to the idea of being made new in Christ? This is one of those books that that most of us, if we read it, we kind of gloss, we glaze over a little bit and just read it so we can get through the Bible in our one-year reading plan. We don't really worry about applying it all that much because it doesn't fit neatly within our cultural understanding and expectations. But I think there's a lot in here about who we are supposed to be in Christ. And it does provide us a model of at least how the Apostle Paul saw the outworking and the application of living in this new life. It's interesting to me where, where Paul starts with, with this book. He starts with highlighting the love and the character of Philemon himself. Love is the evidence of the faith in the life of Philemon. I, I, I would submit to you that love is essential evidence of a life transformed by faith in Christ. Love is an f- essential evidence of a life transformed by faith in Christ. And I know that we've, we've made much of that. I, I always get a little bit squirmy inside when I have to say that because we have made in our society love a great many things that it is not. We, we have made the mistake of attaching love to sex. We need to, we need to stop doing that. Because love is a much broader concept. It has to do with how we interact and treat with all people, not just the person with whom we are in love. It is is an action. It is not a feeling. And and I would go so far, and I I went back and forth on this, this point over and over again, I would say that love is the fundamental evidence of the new life We live in Christ. It is the foundation upon which all of the holiness of God flows flows out of us. It it starts with love, right? It starts with God's love for us, and it starts with our love for neighbor. It's hard to argue against that. Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the, the greatest commandments, and all of the law and all of the prophets flow from that. Paul starts his letter with that foundational idea, highlighting what he's heard about Philemon here recently. People have been talking about Philemon. If we look at the text, I I always thank God, verse four, when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. People have been talking. Little birdies have been bringing some rumors to Paul. And the rumors are, That Philemon, that's a loving guy. That Philemon, that's a guy that you can count on. That Philemon, that's a guy that takes care of people. That Philemon, that that is a guy that is following Jesus with his life. Man, if more of us spread rumors about the good things in people's life, maybe we wouldn't be so concerned and defensive about, you can't judge me. Maybe if we actually did what we're supposed to be, we'd be less concerned about whether or not what people thought of us because we're just doing what's right. Talk about me. Listen, I'm going to give you permission. You want to talk about me in good ways? You talk to whoever you want. (laughs) You have my full permission. Now, don't sell, don't oversell me because I don't want you to put me in a place where I can't match up, but like maybe just a little better than I am. Paul starts by, by laying out the character of Philemon. And what's the good word, again, that Paul has heard concerning him? I hear about your love and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Isn't it interesting that, that's, that those are the two things that Paul chooses and he ties them together? Your love... For all of God's holy people, for your love for others, and I, I hear about your faith in Jesus. And, and I find it interesting how many times in the Bible those two concepts are married. We, we in fact, cannot love God if we're not willing to love others. Because if we don't love others, we are not obeying God. And if we do not obey God, then we're showing, as Jesus said, that we don't really know him. As the host and leader of a house church in the letter, if you, you're, you may be thinking, well, why are these other names included in the first few verses? Well, it's believed that Aphia, that would be a female name, is the wife of Philemon, and Archippus is the son and possibly the active pastor of the church. He's heard that he's refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people Verse 7, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. And Paul's encouraged because Philemon is encouraging others and living the life that Christ has called him to live. I get this. This makes sense to me. My, my great, one of my greatest joys as pastor is when I'm out in the community and someone, someone starts talking about one of you, my people, and I'm like, oh man, they go to my church. They're like, man, I love that person. That person, that's a good person. That person, that person loves people. That person, I can depend on them. That person, they, they show their faith in real ways. Paul says, look, your love has given me great encouragement, great joy and encouragement because you refresh the hearts of the Lord's people. That, those first four, verses four to seven, in three different times, Paul highlights the love of Philemon. It's the definitive feature of Philemon's life. Interestingly enough, you know what Philemon's name means? Do we think about it, it sounds like the name of a city, doesn't it? Philadelphia. Philemon means... Friend with loving purpose. I mean, it's like God made Philemon for this moment. Philemon is living out the truth of his name. The friend with loving purpose. Love is essential evidence of a life transformed by faith in Christ. But as I noted a moment ago, Christian love is more than a feeling. It is faithful action for the good of others. Christian love is more than a feeling. It is faithful action for the good of others. Paul continues to to connect faith, what is believed in the heart and known to be true about God, to partnering in the work of the gospel, Verse six, Paul says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Now there's some variation and and disagreement might be too strong of the word amongst translators about how this verse should read. It's an order of sequence issue. What is Paul really saying in this verse in verse six? Is Paul praying that Philemon's partnership in God's gospel work of grace will be motivated and made effective because of his understanding of God's goodness? Or is Paul praying that Philemon's partnership in God's work will develop deeper understanding of God's goodness? So to to make it a little more simple, does our understanding of God's goodness then push us to good works, or do our good works deepen our understanding of God's goodness? Everybody tracking with me? I realize there's a whole lot of God's goodness. And so there's this debate goes back and forth. I read several different commentaries, and all of them, like, you had a 50-50 chance, right? I always find it funny when, when these ivory tower PhD theologians, like, Drive their, their, their flag in the sand and want to argue about this because can it be both? Right? Can, can it not be both? I would argue that it is, that there's evidence throughout scripture that it is in fact both, that our understanding of God's goodness to us informs the way that we act or is supposed to inform the way we act towards others. But our, our good works towards others actually does help us to deepen our understanding of God's love for us. That just makes sense to me. It's a chicken or an egg argument, which came first. Was it the chicken or was it the egg? No one knows and it doesn't matter. The fact is that both are necessary for life to carry on. It doesn't matter if if our experience of God's love precedes our good works or if our good works helps us to understand God's love, it's chicken or egg. Both have to be there in order for us to fully understand and live the life to which God has called us. But faith in Christ should always inspire us to extend that same compassionate grace to others. And extending compassionate grace to others inevitably serves to strengthen and expand our faith in God. Whatever the case, Philemon is a man defined by his love for others and his faith in God, he is the friend of affectionate purpose. Now I do have to wonder, because of the way the letter, I have to work really hard to take my American mind out of this, because it feels to me a little bit, if I wrote this letter, I'd be setting Philemon up, right? Philemon, you're a really loving dude. You love believers really well. I've been hearing about how much you love everyone, Philemon. And then the other shoe drops, and Paul says, prove it. This love that I've heard about that you show to so many other people, this love that you show to those people, that church that's meeting in your house, this, this, this love that you show to people that love you, where's it gonna be with this person that's wronged you, Philemon? You see, loving others is not always easy, but it's never truly optional. Loving others is not always easy and it's never truly optional. Paul, and I say never truly optional because Paul is giving Philemon a choice, right? But he's not really giving him a choice. Paul's saying, look, I would really love if you would do this without me telling you and ordering you. I, would, I could command you. I could force the issue, but I'd rather not force it. I'd rather you do this voluntarily because it's what you want to do. But Philemon, I'm not going to tell you how to do what you got to do. I'm going to pull back. But just know, Philemon, in just a little bit, I'm coming to visit. I'm going to come see what's going on, Philemon. Loving others is not always easy and it's never truly optional. I don't want to get too far off my notes, but this is something that that we really, 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 really struggle with in the church. We struggle with loving those that aren't easy to love. And, and, And when we feel like we have been wronged, it is so easy for us to divorce ourselves from the body of Christ. I've been seeing this meme that's been going on uh, around on social media. Uh, a lot of pastor friends have posted this, like, what's the hardest thing about being a pastor? And they say, the hardest thing about being a pastor is when I walk through an incredibly difficult situation with a member of my church, and then they leave from, for some small hurt. But it does seem to be the case. Like we're, we're willing to accept the love so long as we're getting what we think we need and what we think we deserve. But as soon as someone stumbles, as soon as someone says something offensive, as soon as someone crosses what we think is our line, we're like, I'm done with them. Let me tell you something. It does not matter what church you go to. In any part of this world, someone is going to hurt your feelings. Anytime you are in a relationship, someone is going to say something. Someone is going to wrong you. I'm going to wrong you. You're going to wrong me. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we love each other enough to, to push through that hurt? Jesus himself set the standard of how we are to live in love. In 2 Corinthians five seventeen through 21, as a matter of fact, we talked about it. We saw that, that Jesus died, that one died for all. That, that, that through Jesus, God was and continually act and, and actively seeks to repair his relationship with us. Jesus was the first and ultimate minister of reconciliation. He's the model to which each of us are to mold. It was God's love that motivated Christ to satisfy the requirements of God's own holiness so that we could be made right and live in right relationship with him. The example of Christ provides us the mode of operation we are to follow, if you will. It is predicated upon sacrificial service and compassionate grace. It is predicated upon us looking and seeing the need of others and prioritizing that upon, above our own needs and our own personal feelings. We don't have to like that, and we can try to temper that all that we want. But brothers and sisters, Jesus literally died on a cross. And as he died and suffered on the cross, looked at those who were actively killing him and said, Father, forgive them. I get that our feelings can be hurt in major ways, that we can be wronged in major ways, but the love of Christ, as Paul said, should compel us. And if Christ was willing to suffer so much for us, do we have the right to stonewall for the hurts that we endure from one another? Paul wrote, Again, in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, Christ's love compels us. It should, the love of Christ should be the driver that allows us to continue in right relationship with God, but also to fulfill our responsibility to seek right relationship with one another. Not only does Christ's love compel us, though, it is commanded of us. John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. Man, it really stinks that Jesus qualified and clarified that love neighbor as self thing, didn't it? Is it doesn't it? Because if it's just love neighbor as love, I love self, then, then I can just love you to the point where I think it is reasonable that you should love me. Which means there's a cap on it, Right? Based upon my personal preference and perspective, I don't have to do anything for you that I don't want you to do for me. Jesus says, No, 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 no. Let's re clarify this. Let's reframe this. You are to love one another as I have loved you. Whatever I did for you, you need to be willing to do for one another. That stinks. It's much easier when there's a limit. We talk all we want about unconditional love, but none of us wants to love the other unconditionally. We want to get unconditional love. We want others to love us that way, but we do not in truth want to extend it to one another. Especially when we deem the person unworthy, when the person has wronged us. But Jesus changes everything. And Philemon is a very poignant example of exactly what Jesus expects of us. I mean this is this is hard. By a stroke of divine providence, Paul has come into contact with a runaway slave belonging to Philemon named Onesimus. In Roman Roman society, the only thing lower than a slave, a slave was dirt. It was the lowest you could get in Roman society. They had no rights. But if you were a runaway slave, you were less than dirt. As a runaway slave, people could beat you, they could abuse you in the absence of your master when you had gone away without, without the affirmation of your master with you. They, they could do a great many things, the worst of which is they could brand your forehead with an F, which meant fugitives, which meant that everyone you came to, no one would help you. They were legally required not to help you. Somehow Onesimus to this point has avoided that but if we look at the text and we look at verses 18 through 19, it's likely that not only had Onesimus run away, it is likely that he had stolen from Philemon in the process. You got to think, the only thing worse than a runaway slave was your own runaway slave who'd run off with your, your resources. You know, re, wait, the, 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 a story that will help us have some context and understanding of what's going on here would be the story of, of the talents, right? Or the minas from Jesus, where Jesus talks about, hey, a master is getting ready to go away for business, and as the master went away for business, he called his servants or slaves to himself and said, hey, look, I'm going away for business. Here is, here is several years' worth of earnings. I want you to take these, and I want you to use them. I, I want you to go out and work with these for me for a while, and then come back and report to me. Onesimus, as was often the case for slaves in Roman society, was like, mm, you going to give me 10 years' worth of earnings? Your boy is gone. I mean, this is the prodigal son and some. At least the prodigal son was given stuff that was coming to him. Onesimus just stole it outright. Paul says, Look, if he's stolen anything from you, and the in, inference in the text is, and he has, I'll pay it back when I get there myself. You charge it to my account. Regardless, again, of our feelings of the morality of slavery, it is clear that Onesimus has wronged Philemon. Philemon, not Onesimus, is the victim in the story. But, by God's grace, something has happened in Onesimus' life. Verse 10 tells us, that Onesimus became Paul's son while in chains. Onesimus has come to Christ. You know what I think something that's easy to overlook in this text? Is the evidence of Onesimus' faith and courage. Because clearly Philemon got this letter, right? You know how he got the letter? Onesimus took it back to him. You want to see evidence of a life transformed by Christ? A runaway slave who by all accounts is is deserving of incredible punishment, who has no rights, is going to go back to his master and hope that a one-page scroll is going to save him from incredible beatings or even crucifixion. It is clear that God has made a difference in the heart and life of Onesimus. But Onesimus has to make things right. Onesimus is is a poignant example of what it means to be made new in Christ and what it means to to seek to make a relationship right on your end. To put yourself at risk, to step out in faith and trust that God is going to preserve and protect you. To put yourselves in in God's hands and say, whatever comes of this, God, I leave it to you. You know what's interesting is just as Philemon's name has meaning in the text, so does Onesimus' name. Onesimus actually means useful, which Paul plays on when he says, Look, he wasn't useful to you before, but he is useful now. He was just a slave, but Paul says, Not anymore. Now he's family. He's a fellow man and a dear brother in Christ. There are scholars that suggest that Paul is backing in to the abolition of slavery here. Just as he does in in Galatians, a little clearer in Galatians where he says there is neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female. That God transforms our relationships with one another and Paul is walking them easily in towards the fact that we need to reframe how we see and treat other human beings Paul doesn't explicitly tell Philemon to set Onesimus free or just to drop the issue. He doesn't tell him to let go and let God, but both are heavily implied. Paul is asking a lot of Philemon here, but not issuing an apostolic order, which he could have done. But did Paul really need to command or force Philemon to do what he was asking? Is Paul not asking Philemon to do what Christ himself did and called us to do? Is Paul not asking Philemon to just do with Onesimus what Philemon has done with everybody else? Jesus had clearly changed Philemon's heart and life. We can see that in verses four through seven. A man known for his faith and love. Jesus had also changed Onesimus' heart and life. In both cases, Christ had made these men new, inherently pushed both of them to seek reconciliation with one another, where one had hurt the other and one had been hurt. What's in question though for us is how deep did the transformation go for Philemon? Would Philemon extend grace, mercy, and love to someone who had so egregiously wronged him? Would Philemon once again partner with Paul in the ministry of reconciliation when it was hard, when the other person did not deserve it and had so wronged him? Would Philemon love Onesimus as a brother rather than punishing him as he deserved? It's interesting that we don't know the answer to that question. We're never given an answer as to how Philemon responded. We're given some, some kind of hints. If we look back in Galatians, we see that there are, or Colossians, we see some, some inferences that Philemon likely did what he was supposed to do. And there are some things inherent even in the book of Philemon, such as the fact that the church itself was going to see this letter and that, that are you going to live this pastoral calling or are you not? And the fact that Philemon did not just burn the scroll right away and move on with his life indicates that he probably did what it was saying he should do. that he did take the the wrong. Paul is utterly convinced of it. He's like, look, I, I have full confidence that not only are you going to do this very difficult thing I'm asking you, but you'll do even more. Two things that we need to think about for our own life. Who we become as the new creation in Christ does not undo all the hurts that came along before or stop hurt from coming afterwards. Who we become as the new creation in Christ does not undo the hurts that came before or stop more from coming in the future, whether done by us or done to us. Whether, sometimes we're in the position of, of Onesimus, aren't we? Where we're the ones that have done the wrong and we need to step out in faith and we need to step out with integrity and say, you know what, I have wronged you, I have hurt you, and I ask for your forgiveness. Sometimes we're in the position of Philemon where we have been wronged. And we need to humble ourselves and say, you know what? Yes, you have wronged me, but I'm going to forgive you and love you as Christ loved me. Both are difficult. I would argue that Philemon is the more, in the more difficult place. More often, we like to see ourselves as the Onesimus. We're the one that wronged and we are owed forgiveness. We are owed Grace. We don't like to see ourselves as Philemon, as the one that has to extend grace, that owes forgiveness, that owes compassion, that owes love to others. But is that not the command of Jesus? Love neighbor as I have loved you. Loving neighbor is not a geographical concept where we just have to love those that are immediately around us, the people that live next door that have become our friends or that are maybe even difficult. Just love them through indifference. No, it is an act of loving. It is a moral concept that if we are failing to love one another as Christ loved us, we are failing to live out the transformed life, the new life that comes in Christ. There are many requirements for living the right. There's a lot of different elements that go into living the new life to which Christ has saved us. There are certainly, I'm not saying there aren't do's and don'ts. I'm not saying that it's all about this loosey-goosey love. I am saying that love goes into all of it though. According to Jesus, it is our love for one another that is going to be the defining feature by which the world will recognize that we are his disciples. John 13, 35 is not me making that up. It is Jesus's words himself. You can look it up. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Man, it would have been so much easier if Jesus would have given me just some clear hoops that I had to jump through. Some easy do's and don'ts, Right? Don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do. Like that old model is easy. Done and done, I don't like most of those things, so that's fine, not a problem. Hey, don't lie, okay, got that. Don't cheat, okay, got that. Don't murder, so take commandments, right? Don't don't murder someone, got that, like, okay. Don't steal your neighbor's wife, okay, got that too. Like this. Done 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 and done. Love neighbor as you love self. Come on, man. What does that even mean? Because now that encompasses every action. It's not just a few things and hoops that I can jump through. It's like every aspect of my life is playing into whether or not I am being the person Christ has called me to be. But that's what it means to be the new creation. Is to be remade, to be restored, to be reconciled. Does love define us? Love defined Philemon. Is it what drives us and drove Philemon? Are we evalu- evaluating our actions and attitudes based on Christ's love for us and for others and allowing it to compel us to love God with all that we are and to love neighbor as Christ loved us? Because that is what truly makes us different in the world. And not only is it what makes us different, but Christ's love is what will allow us to make a difference in the world. Does love, it's the one thing I want you to walk away considering this morning, does love, specifically the sacrificial love of Christ, define you? Does love, the sacrificial love of Jesus, define us as a church? Are we willing to look at others with the same compassionate grace with which Christ saw us and willing to sacrificially extend a hand, extend our resources and extend our very selves in order to embrace them and love them, to welcome them into the family, whether they have wronged us or not, to offer them forgiveness and grace and to hand in hand walk together pursuing Jesus because that's what love looks like. We've got to learn to not let the hurt dictate how we treat one another. We've got to learn to, even though that to not harbor that hurt and and to allow that to develop bitterness and hate for one another, but instead to to soften that and to, you know, we I may not be acting towards others in my own love, but I, I need to live out that love of Christ regardless. And I believe what Paul said will be true of me, that as I live out the goodness of God towards me to others, I will experience God's love towards them as well. I will understand God's grace and love better and will be better able to love others. Does love, the sacrificial love of Christ, define us? Because it is the definitive mark of those who have been made new by the blood of Jesus. Father God, may this be true in our lives. May we understand the imperative of loving neighbor as self. May we understand the importance of loving other as you have loved us. May we know the truth that they will know that we are your followers, that we are Christians by our love for one another and our love for a world that desperately needs you. God, may we in your love live different lives that we might make a difference in the world by your power and presence. God, inspire us, instill your grace within us that we might actively extend it to others, that we might not only enjoy our new life, but that it might influence and impact those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.